Hey there, I'm Andrew Ainsworth, a proud supporter of Sword and Laser, thanks to Patreon.com. It's easy to set up, and what do you get out of it? Endless geeky bantering about the latest sci-fi and fantasy books. So if you want to help out, head over to Patreon.com slash Sword and Laser. Give a little, and get a lot of Veronica mispronouncing things. everyone welcome to the sword and laser i'm veronica belmont and who else are you i'm no she's more than just veronica belmont but I'm we don't know who i'm talking about um sword and laser is a book club but it's so much more we bring you author <laughs> interviews news from the world of science fiction and fantasy and awesome discussions from fans just like you hopefully none of you are new listeners and you're like what are they doing <laughs> Why is what is this that? Is this even a podcast? What am I listening to right now? Mm-hmm. Um, Veronica mm-hmm. has a small human growing inside her. That's all. It's nothing big. I do. Well, it's not I big do. yet. It will be. It's getting it's bigger. Getting big. three, <laughs> You're like, I beg to differ. Allegedly feels three pounds big. and 16 inches long at this that point. Ain't, that ain't small. You're right. Yeah. Kicking up a storm. Mm. I was uh, hosting... Um, so I work at Adobe, and I was hosting uh, part of Adobe Max today, mm. which is our uh, conference. And I was doing my live segments, and just the kicking, just the just unbelievable kicking, just like in my ribs, in my guts, like everywhere they can reach. You know what and that means, right? No. You have to name your child Max. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, so Middle that name was... Adobe. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, um, there's been some funny conversations going on over on Goodreads about this kind of stuff. So I, I appreciate my my extended sword and laser family getting a kick out of my experience right now with uh, the first child, the firstborn. That's right. We've only got you for two more uh, episodes, right? I guess so. Yeah, one more book. <sighs> One more book. We'll reveal that book towards the end of the show. Towards the end, yes. But for now, let's jump into the quick burns. Jan uh, posted that the trailer for the new The Watch TV series from the BBC that is, quote unquote, inspired (laughs) by Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels of Sam Vimes and the Ankh Morpork Watch has been released at New York Comic Con. And Jan writes, I think I need a flask of something really, really strong now. And immediately followed up with Rihanna Pratchett and Neil Gaiman chiming in on Twitter. Rihanna Pratchett, uh, Terry Pratchett's daughter, writing, look, I think it's fairly obvious that the watch shares no DNA with my father's watch. This is neither criticism nor support. It is what it is. And then Neil Gaiman wrote, But the fan base are fans, and they like the source material because it's the source material they like. So if you do something else, you risk alienating the fans on a monumental scale. It's not Batman if he's now a news reporter in a yellow trench coat with a pet bat. I'd watch that. I know. I was going to say, if Neil Gaiman wrote that (laughs) and called it Batman, I'd watch it. I really would. Um, I haven't seen this trailer yet. I'm sorry to say. Did you watch it? I did. uh, And... Here's my thoughts on the watch. Thoughts. I am not steeped in Terry Pratchett. I have very much enjoyed the Terry Pratchett we have read. Uh, the Hog Father, Good Omens. Uh, I think he's fantastic and hilarious. And I trust Rihanna Pratchett when she says this is not uh, sharing any DNA 
with the watch that would have come from Terry Pratchett's mind. That said, it didn't look bad. Uh, I imagine that every Terry Pratchett fan is not going to be able to separate it, as Jan said, without getting a flask of something. So I totally get that. But not being someone who is comparing it in my mind, I'm like, maybe they just shouldn't have called it the watch. Just sever sever the connection with the Terry Pratchett source material and call it something else. It it might be a perfectly fine series. I I will use this moment to speak as other Sword and Laser listeners who have not also seen this trailer uh, because I have not. I'm coming from a place of ignorance. Do you feel, was it the tone that was wrong? Was it the... Was it not funny? Like, where did it feel What I'm saying is, it looks good. Okay. But I'm I'm curious, why why do fans, do you just feel like you can't speak as a fan because you just haven't read enough? I I absolutely can't because I don't, I am very peripherally aware of the Ankh Morpork watch. Uh, I -hmm. I have not read enough Pratchett to understand all the nuance that would be like, no, they would never say that. And this wouldn't work. And those people look wrong. And the tone, why are you playing popular music? That's so against the, like, I don't know any of that stuff. And I assume that's what they're saying is this just doesn't look right. This is Batman I being see. a news reporter in a yellow trench coat with a pet bat. Not <laughs> Which Batman. I would still watch. And, and that's my point is like, honestly, news reporter in a yellow trench coat with a pet bat could make a great series, but he's right. If you're expecting Bruce Wayne, you're going to be disappointed if you get that. And I think that's what's going on here is they should have just called it like fantasy cops or something, you know, <laughs> uh, although it doesn't even look very copish to me. It just it looks like I don't know. It looks like a fun British fantasy comedy that if it had not claimed any relation to Terry Pratchett might be OK. I could be wrong. I might watch it and think it's horrible. Who knows? I am curious to know what uh, fellow Sword and Laser listeners and readers out there think. Um, so we'll put the link to yeah, the YouTube yeah. uh, to the YouTube video in the show notes on swordandlaser.com. Um, and send us a tweet at Sword and Laser. Let us know what you thought of the trailer and why, if you didn't like it or if you feel weird about it or yeah, if you feel yeah. like it didn't quite follow. Yeah, like what, why? What, what What was different about it? I'm, I'm just curious to know from people who are like true fans. Yeah, because I totally respect that to a person all the true fans that I've heard from are like, no, no to that trailer. So I get yeah. it. Like there's, there's okay. something wrong there. I just, I just can't see it. Cause I'm ignorant of the source material. And I've, I've read a fair amount of Pratchett myself. Um, but I just haven't seen the trailer yet. So <laughs> I will hopefully have formed some opinions by the next time we chat about this. Um, we've got next up a quadfecta, a quadfecta Whoa. of television news. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. <A> first. <laughs> um, <laughs> we have the Expanse season five trailer. Um, this is coming out December sixteenth. That's yes, when the show's yes. coming out. Give it to season. me now. Why wait till December sixteenth? Just show it to me now, please. Thank you. Okay, that's all I have to say. I really okay, that's all that. Tom has to say. Uh, Trike says season two of his Dark Materials uh, starts November sixteenth on HBO. So also, month give earlier. that to me now too. I could probably wait till November sixteenth, but I'd rather not. I couldn't get into it. I couldn't oh, I get into it. season I one. Yeah. Did you like it? I didn't love it as much as The Expanse, but I liked it. Yeah. Okay. All right. And then Tomahome says, Conan the Barbarian series is coming to Netflix. Well, okay then. <laughs> okay. That I will be interesting. That. I will certainly I can be, wait for uh, that one, curious. but I'll probably sample it just to see. All right. 
And then finally, Jan says Netflix has ordered a YA vampire drama adaptation of V.E. Schwab's short story, First Kill, which was published in September. Variety goes on to write, yeah, in the show, when it's time for teenage vampire Juliet to make her first kill uh, so she can take her place among a powerful vampire family, she sets her sights on a new girl in town named Calliope. But much to Juliet's surprise, Calliope is a vampire hunter, of course, from a family of celebrated slayers. Both find that the other won't be so easy to kill, and unfortunately, <laughs> way too easy to fall for. <laughs> D.E. Schwab created the series and will serve as co-writer. Felicia D. Henderson from Fringe, The Punisher, will serve as co-writer and showrunner. I'm like, I'm so tempted to make, uh, some kind of, um, um, uh, oh crap. Now I'm blanking on the joke I was going to make, but honestly, I don't want to make any jokes because this sounds amazing. And V.E. Schwab is awesome. And she's co-writing this. And it, I think it's just going to be amazing. I, I love V.E. Schwab. I love everything that she's written that I've read. And I am cracking up though, because I hadn't read this blurb before we went live. And as soon as I got to, uh, the uh but much Juliet surprise Calliope is a vampire hunter and I was like oh they're gonna make <laughs> oh, out <of> course. <laughs> oh, it's going down going. yeah <laughs> uh I was going to jokingly uh call it derivative of what we do in the shadows <laughs> yes because yeah, there's no, a vampire I was, I was hunter slayer yeah. yeah yeah but uh it's not even the same thing and uh it sounds pretty awesome Mm-hmm. Mark uh, wrote in about the Dark Archives, a librarian's investigation into the science and history of books bound in human skin. And the <laughs> <laughs> I, won't, I won't even finish that. Uh, Joseph Lister's quest to transform the grisly world of Victorian medicine. Uh, not too late. Veronica, October 25th, 2020, 2 p.m. Central Time, the International <laughs> Museum of Surgical Science is hosting a free virtual author reading with Megan Rosenblum in conversation with medical historian, author, and TV host Lindsay Fitzharris. These two friends will discuss medical history and explore human skin books. Oh, God. Human skin books. Uh, thank you, Mark, for posting this and giving me the opportunity to say human skin books on Sword human and Laser. Human skin books. Human skin books. I know many of you have questions. I direct you to the International Museum of Surgical Sciences author reading of Dark Archives, A Librarian's Investigation, October 25th. The uh, a librarian's investigation into the science and history of books bound in human skin and the butchering art and the butchering art. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, I went to a museum in London and I can't remember the name of it, but it had it was like a museum of medical devices from like that era and earlier. Mm-hmm. And it was gnarly oh yeah it was like the tools and they, of course they had plague masks and they had all the like super macabre this one stuff. was used for removing the leeches that kind of stuff that totally totally yeah, that yeah. kind of stuff i think i did a video there and i can't i can't remember 
Um, but it was so, oh, it was not, it was pretty exciting and gnarly, but this is, this sounds like fun Halloween fair. So oh, if totally. you, if, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Silvana says the, uh, first Ignite Award winners have been announced. Um, she says, I've not read most of the winners, though some are on my TBR. I just want to say that FiaCon last weekend was the best convention I attended this year. No contest. Wow. Organizers, panelists, fans in Discord server, such a great atmosphere. I can't wait for the next one in 2021. Ah, that's so great. Uh, and the best uh, adult novel went to Gods of Jaden's Shadow by Silvia Moreno Garcia. Uh, if you don't remember the nominees, The Dragon Republic by R.F. Kuang, uh, Jade War by Fonda Lee, Storm of Locusts by Rebecca Roanhorse, and Kingdom of Copper by S.A. Chakraborty were the other best novel. Uh, nominees. Also, Best Young Adult Novel went to We Hunt the Flame by Hafsa Faisal. Nice. I was trying to read, um, I was looking for like spoopy, spoopy mm-hmm. vampire-ish books. Yeah, it's Halloween um, times. Spoopy things yeah, are in order. Yeah, there was, there was a book that Sylvia Moreno-Garcia wrote, um, but it's not available yet. Or it had like a limited run, and now there's going to be, I can't remember the name of it though, but it sounded really, really good. It was about vampires in Mexico City. And I'm sure someone here will know it, but it was like, oh, maybe I should make this a pick. But then it wasn't widely available or it hadn't come out yet in paperback or whatever. So maybe, maybe next time. Maybe next time. Maybe when I come back. Yeah. It sounds like it's coming out in 2021 sometime on tour, I believe. Um, So I'll I'll look into that. Uh, We've got a couple other uh, lists here to finish off the quick burns with. Uh, If you're looking for things to read, you might check out Time Magazine's list of what they call the 100 best fantasy books of all time. Jan posted this in our Goodreads. Time writes, with a panel of leading fantasy authors, N.K. Jemisin, Neil Gaiman, Saba Tahir, Tomi Adeyemi, Diana Gabaldon, George R. R. Martin, uh, Cassandra Clare, and Marlon James. Time presents the most engaging, inventive, and influential works of fantasy fiction in chronological order, beginning in the ninth century. This is really great. Um, Jan says uh, some surprises there, but I think it's a very interesting list. I personally like that the jury seems to have wanted to present the diversity of the fantasy genre and feature diverse voices on their lists. Uh, but yeah, it starts with the Arabian Nights. Uh, so that's why we're we're going back to the ninth century, because uh, it's got the Arabian Nights, Lamort d'Arthur, Alice's Adventure in Wonderland. Uh, oh, this is fantastic. Yeah, Ozma of Oz. Of- and then it gets into the 20th century with Mary Poppins, Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe. I guess Ozma of Oz, 20th century, but. I mean, I know we're awesome, but there are a huge number of uh, sword and laser picks on here. Golden Compass is on here. American Gods. This is actually a we, a good resource for for when we want to do lo- yeah. like older picks. There's some the ones that we haven't picked on here are very good choices. Yeah, man, um, I'm excited about this uh, fifth season. Um, I think I, I knew about this list tangentially because I saw that Charlie Jane Anzer, Anders posted that all the birds in the sky was was made the list too, and, and oh, she was nice. pretty stoked. Well done, Charlie yeah. Jane. So very uh, cool. Our 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 pick for next month will be on this list. Sweet. And then Sai says that Polygon has picked the uh, 15 most influential sci-fi novels of the past 15 years, although one better fits in the fantasy category. All but four are sword and laser picks. Whoa. Oh. 
Polygon just pillaging our picks list. That's cool. We're cool with that. That's why so we're yeah, here. I'll read yeah, these, I'll read through these fast because there's only 15. Um, Blind Sight by Peter Watts. Uh, the Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins. The Wind-Up Girl by Paolo Bacigalupi. The Red Trilogy by Linda Nagata. That's one we haven't read. Uh, Leviathan Wakes by James S.A. Corey. The Martian by Andy Weir. Ancillary Justice by Anne Leckie. A uh, Long Way to a Small Angry Planet by Becky Chambers. The Three-Body Problem by Shikshin Liu. Um, let's see. Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. Uh, Lagoon by Nettie Akorafor. Haven't read that. We have read Nettie, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Fifth Season by N.K. Jemison. Aurora by Kim Stanley Robinson. The Calculating Stars by Mary Robinette Cowell. The Lesson by Codwell Turnbull. Have not read. So I'm not sure which one of these is maybe not... Aurora. We did, we've did. we read Kim Stanley Robinson, but I don't think we read Aurora. No, I was saying which one would be a fantasy novel. Oh. Um, or didn't I, quite fit in with... I don't know. I don't know if you're going to say that, you got to tell us which ones. Hi. I know. <laughs> maybe, maybe Station Eleven? Station Eleven was kind of like, was more end of the world-y. Mm, it was apocalyptic, not fantasy. Apocalyptic, yeah. yeah. I would not maybe. I don't think I would put that in sci-fi. Did we? We read. Okay. <laughs> I think we should just let Sai tell us which one he thought it was, because. Okay. Opinions may yeah. differ whether it belongs. Well, now I'm thinking about. I'm trying to figure out which one is not a sword and laser pick, because Kim Stanley Robinson. I thought we read Aurora, but did I read it at the same time as we read? Another one that was similar. The same time we read Neil Stevenson's other generation ship novel. I think they're too similar. I think that's why I thought we read Aurora. Gosh, if only there was a wiki. That I know. I'm collected trying not to cheat. I'm trying all, not to cheat. <laughs> no, when you're the host of a show where it's more fun for people to know for sure, it's okay, okay to cheat. And yes, we did read Aurora. I was wrong. So that wasn't the one. Okay. All right. Then I think. I think the answer well it doesn't matter we didn't read the lesson we didn't read <laughs> i don't know that this is lagoon we sh- i'm almost done we didn't read <sighs> just fast forward folks. she'll get there don't worry did i, did I read the one of- oh i can't do it i don't know i don't know the answer i can't figure it out i've only not read two of these so i assume those are the two listen okay. if you actually want to know folks go to our goodreads and 15 people will have corrected us by now so it's it's all good i love them i love them all right now it is time for bear your sword b-a-r-e your sword which is our feedback from the audience um, we got a number of uh, letters about um, how libraries handle ebooks. Oh, yeah. And so I wanted to catch up on a couple of these. Um, Chaos Librarian, who wrote uh, a couple of very well thought out emails, thank you so much, said, Hello. The way that libraries provide their patrons with ebooks varies greatly from library to library and consortium to consortium. It's a pretty complicated can of worms, so I mostly can only speak from my own experience at the library where I work. There are two main models of ebook lending for libraries. In the first, the one that you discussed on the show, libraries purchase a license for the ebook, and that license allows the library to lend the ebook out to a set number of users. Libraries can also have the option to purchase more copies. I'm on the fiction buying committee, and if we see that an ebook has a large number of holds and thus a really long waiting time, we will purchase additional copies. What we are really doing is purchasing licensing that allows more patrons to borrow that ebook at once. This is how Overdrive, Libby is the name of the Overdrive app, works. 
The second model is a pay-per-use model. This is where the library is charged a certain amount of money each time a patron downloads the ebook file. Usually, to be able to have some idea of a budget, patrons are limited to a certain number of downloads per month with this model. Resources such as Hoopla follow this model of e-resource lending. I hope that was helpful, and feel free to ask any further questions. Ah, that's great. Thank you, Chaos Librarian. Uh, Hoopla was the app that I couldn't remember the name of when we were talking about this last time. Oh. Uh, well, we have she another- has more. Yeah. Should I read the next one then? <laughs> Go ahead. Yes. Uh, hello again. Here are a couple more details that occurred to me during a fiction buying meeting this morning where I was helping to select titles to purchase through Overdrive. Usually the license will be for a specific number of users, usually one, and last for a certain amount of time, 12 or 24 months. After the set period of time, the library would have to purchase the ebook again or the oh, license. Geez. For example, a common model for a new high demand title seems to be $55 to $60 for a 24 month period with one user able to download the title at a time. A less common model was a set price for a certain number of checkouts. The cost varied, but one example that we purchased today was $16.99 for 24 checkouts. After the hmm. 24 checkouts have been reached, we will have to decide whether we want to purchase that ebook again. The format of the ebook was also variable. Not all titles were available for Kindle. As you can see, it's all convoluted and rather expensive, but I hope that helps to clarify slightly. Yes, it does. Thank you yeah, very much. Yeah, very more than slightly. I think that's that's fascinating. Um, it really does sound like there's a... I had no idea that they would limit the license by date also. Um, yeah, that, so for that makes sense to time. me. It's just a limited license that says like, okay, you can you can have $17, you get this license for 24 downloads or, or you know, we'll have, le- we'll have more downloads, but we'll limit the time. Like there's all kinds mm-hmm. of ways to, to cut and slice it. All right. We also had an email from Jenny, uh, Reading Envy Jenny, who says, Hi, Veronica and Tom. You might be interested in the Panorama Project, uh, leading multiple studies in the public library ebook world. I will add it's funded by Overdrive, so it is likely that they have a slight bias, but hey, so do publishers. And she links to it. I will add that not only do public libraries pay more for ebooks, they never own them. So even as a book goes out of style, the cost per use remains the same. If I were a publisher, I'd be more concerned about print, where libraries buy the book one time and never have to pay again, no matter how many people check it out or how many years it lingers in the stacks. I feel their loss argument is a straw man argument to make them justify charging more for ebooks. I'm on the academic library side, and not only are ebooks much more clunky than the public library options, publishers are even more restrictive. We buy most of our books with what show up to users as unlimited use, which allows for multiple users. This is great when it's required for a class, etc. Behind the scenes is a complex formula charging us per use, but not for the first five minutes. So a person can go in and poke around and decide the book isn't what they need. So we actually load records into the catalog of books we haven't purchased until someone finds them and uses them. We call this model demand-driven acquisition. Sadly, many non-academic titles aren't even available to us in digital form, which was a big challenge when we went remote in the spring. The more you know, Jenny. Yeah, so think the reading these makes me uh, sort of formulate a, a good metaphor in my mind, which is ebooks uh, are unlimited; they're infinitely mm-hmm. copyable. And what publishers have agreed on with libraries is we will rent them to you. We will rent you access to our ebooks. 
because you could technically have infinite copies uh, if we didn't play nice with each other. So this mm-hmm. is all a negotiation between libraries and publishers of how that rental model will work. Uh, and there's lots of ways to rent something. You can rent something for the number of uses. You can use it 24 times, and then you turn it in. Or you can rent it for a period of time or some combination of both. Uh, and the stuff from Jenny kind of fits into that. Like, oh, we'll we'll let you uh, rent the video. But if you don't watch the video, we won't charge you for it. You'll get, you'll get a little short preview you know, that kind I of kind of like that model. I think I, I like that model. Um, I, I wonder if that ever happens in non-academic senses where like a library can have a preview of a book and then only have to pay per the number of people who read past the first couple pages or something like that. The thing to remember, too, is physical books are not infinite. Uh, libraries have limited amount of space. Books are heavy to move around. You have to pay for someone to shelve them. And, uh, yes, you can buy a copy and, and loan it out as many times as you want. Uh, but you can't easily say, oh, I want to make that 24 copies, right? You'd have to go mm-hmm. buy 23 copies, have them shipped to you, put them on the stacks, etc. So there are some sort of natural physical breaks to how big a library's physical collection will get that the publishers account for and say like, well, they're not going to buy 24 copies of that unless it's super popular. Uh, so they're not as worried about physical copies being checked out multiple times because because of those physical limitations. Whereas with eBooks, there's really no limit. I mean, you could let a library have a thousand copies of something, right? Because it's, there's just like no marginal cost to making a copy of an eBook available. Right. Right. Which I think is why there's just so many complicated systems in place for this and, and so much confusion because I think people like me, I mean, I, I do the same thing. I'm like, why, why can't I just have unlimited copies? It's yeah. digital. Right. You know? it, and it's like, <laughs> it's well, like... because they're doing this little dance of, well, we used to go with this system, but we, we have right, this new right. system and we don't, the libraries don't want to get, uh, you know, messed up. The publishers don't want to get messed up. So, yeah. Uh, let's move to Ben's blurb on Twitter. Uh, Ben's blurb wrote, looking for new podcasts. Give me two podcasts you enjoy. One must be book related. Book. Sword and Laser, hands down, the best SFF podcast about books. Yay! Uh, 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 We should give a shout out to others, uh, Fake Doctors, Real Friends, hosted by the duo Zach Braff and Donald Faison, which is a Scrubs rewatch podcast. Amazing. By the actors, of course, who were in Scrubs. (laughs) Yeah, so I I just wanted to include this because uh, other than just, you know, scratching our backs, our Mm. own backs a little bit, which I like to do from time to time. Um, there's a, it's a great thread that has a lot of good suggestions for other book-related podcasts and other non-book-related podcasts. Um, so follow the link to uh, Ben's blurb uh, in our show notes and on Twitter. And it's uh, yeah, find some some new stuff to listen to Thanks, on ben's top of blurb. everything. Tomahome writes, uh, Sword and Laser Finder was a fast space opera read. I got antsy for more progression on Mars. Fergus gets beat up a lot. I like his crazy schemes. More on the aliens, please. Mari needs to chill. I like the shielders, humorous tone, and high body count. I hear book two is better. Oh, that's a, a recommendation for me because I liked book one. Uh, but I do too. Yeah, if book two is even better, that's great. Also, Mari does need to chill, but you know, kids, what are you going to do? <laughs> kids these days. <laughs> kids these days. Tell me about it. I'm an old hat at kids these days. You Just kidding. Be. I don't know anything. <laughs> I don't I don't know anything. Um, you feed them, right? You have to feed them pretty regularly. I would. I've heard. Yeah. Okay. Got it. 
let's uh, hop into the book of the month discussion. Um, we are going to wrap up Finder, but not before we kick off the book for November, which is my final book pick that Tom actually picked because... <laughs> I suggested like four books. You picked it. I picked it. I have wanted to read it for a while, but Tom, let me, I'll let you get into the uh, book briefing because I think you said there was a lot of interesting stuff going on with yes. this particular author. Of the four suggestions I gave to Veronica, Veronica picked Howl's Moving Castle by Diana Wynne-Jones. Uh, Diana Wynne-Jones sadly is no longer with us. She was born in 1934 in London, uh, lived until 2000, uh, 2011, uh, she uh, studied English at St. Anne's College in Oxford, where she was taught by C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Whoa. Uh-huh. Uh, then, while she was having her children, three children, three boys, in the mid-1960s, she started writing to keep her sanity, not just because of the kids. There were other stuff going on in her life. Her first book was a novel for adults called Changeover, uh, but... She eventually started to write some some children's uh, works as well, uh, and uh, she actually won the 1978 Guardian Children's Fiction Prize uh, for the Crestomancy novel. Uh, she was twice a finalist for the Hugo Award, nominated 14 times for the wow. Locus Award, seven times for the Mythopoeic Award, which she won twice. Uh, nominated twice for a British Fantasy Award and won once in 1999, and nominated twice for a World Fantasy Award, which she won in 2007. Jones has also been cited as an inspiration for several fantasy and science fiction authors, among which are Philip Pullman, Neil Gaiman, Terry Pratchett. Mind you, these are people who are like, I was influenced by this woman. Uh, Philip Pullman, Neil Gaiman, Terry Pratchett, Penelope Lively, Robin McKinley, Megan Whalen turner J.K. Rowling, and Dinah Rabinovich. Uh, wow. so unfortunately she was diagnosed with lung cancer in 2009, uh, and, uh, she was fighting it off, but discontinued chemotherapy in June, 2010, because it, uh, was mm -hmm. making her feel too ill. Uh, and she eventually, uh, died as I mentioned in 2011. Uh, but she was friends with Neil Gaiman and Robin McKinley, uh, both of whom, uh, cited her as, as influences. Also, uh, Howl's Moving Castle, many of you already know, was made into a very successful Miyazaki-led uh, anime in 2004. A version was dubbed into English in 2005 with the voice of Howl, the character created by Diana Wynne-Jones, performed by Christian Bale. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's not even all of it. Uh, if you want the full story, uh, get the briefing at patreon.com slash short and laser. I'm excited. And yeah, this is going to be my last pick for a while. So that's it's true. Be good. That's I think true. It's going to be good. I think it will be, uh, it comes with a pedigree and, uh, I feel, I feel remiss in not having picked Diana Wynne Jones before now. Like she's I know, amazing. I'm kind of right? embarrassed. Yeah. Oh yeah. Tolkien and Lewis were two of my lecturers in college. Also, I'm no friends with Neil Gaiman. Uh, I influenced all these major authors. In fact, a lot of people point to Diana Wynne Jones. If you're someone who likes the Harry Potter universe and you're looking for an alternative, uh, the works of Diana Wynne Jones are often cited as, as predecessors and, uh, and, and other things that you might enjoy. Very cool. All right. Well, that will be our pick for, for November. So pick it up where, where books are found. And Tom, thanks for the book briefing. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. It's what I do. <laughs> 
All right. Well, now it is time to wrap up our October pick, um, which was Finder by Suzanne Palmer. And I just, you know, to kick things off, I, I, I thought this was really fun. It was it was a fast read. It was enjoyable. Um, I just thought the the characters were interesting. I liked Fergus a lot. I, I listened both to the audiobook, uh, though I did more read the Kindle edition. Um, I had both. Um, but I, I thought it was going to take me longer to get through, so I didn't actually need to go back and forth as much as I initially thought. But the the world was... I, I think my only problem with the book was that I had a really hard time picturing um, Cerny and the halo and that space and what it looked like. Hmm. Um, I had to kind of fuzzy up my internal view Mm -hmm. of what was happening from a visual place set um yeah i I couldn't picture what the space what the wheel looked like i couldn't picture Mm -hmm. what all the different areas looked like i think what threw me is that it wasn't it's not a planet really well it's kind of a planet it's not a planet is it a planet it's not a planet not really it's just a collection of different things in space yeah and you need a spacesuit to go from one to the other you can't just like there's no air until you get inside, go through a lock. So I think that, that I had a hard time kind of picturing it in hmm. my mind. What about you? What'd you think? I, I didn't even think about picturing it. I, I sort of pictured every piece of it. Like when they're on the trolley at the very beginning, mm-hmm. you know, I was like, Oh, okay. Like space cable car. Got it. You know, there's stars outside, but you're, you're sitting in seats and I get, you know, that made sense to me. Um, there've been so many books we've read that described cables uh, that you use to, to move outside of things that even though it wasn't described, I, I just had a picture of like, Oh, okay. I I get how that might work. Uh, Mm -hmm. I never thought about the fact that I don't really have a map in my mind of any of this. I just, I know what each setting looked like to me and it probably looks different than what it looked like to you. Right. Cause I just kind of threw it up in my head. So I had a really hard time with that. I I guess I'm someone who really likes to picture Mm -hmm. my scenery and what's going on in the world. Like I watch it like a movie and I know a lot of people don't do that. Um, So that became very apparent to me when I had difficulty. Um, Before I get into the threads, I want to tease one of our listeners a little bit (laughs) just because this was something I noticed. I don't usually call people out by name in a teasing manner. Um, but as I was picking the threads to talk about for this wrap up, I noticed a very common theme. And that was that in every single thread I read, there was a post by Tamahome <laughs> saying that they did not like the stuff on Mars. <laughs> wait, <laughs> so wait, 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 wait. Uh, we just the read first... the tweet from Tamahome, too, in which she said, I got antsy for more progression on yeah. Mars. <laughs> yeah. So, um, So in the first one, which was scene change, and I will read Seth's comment first, Tamahome, first comment, I actually didn't like the Mars part. (laughs) Then in the next thread, which is Finn, first contact with the enemy, one of the first comments, Tamahome, got a little antsy with the Mars stuff, but after that, it's good fun. And then finally on uh, Finn, well, that was quick, uh, from Silvana. Um, This was a little further down on the thread, Tamahome writes, all done. The ending was fun. I was getting a little antsy on Mars. <laughs> but the Mars stuff comes later, right? I don't know. I don't know if he's referring to the um, 
that the Mars in the flashbacks. Oh, by the way, spoilers ahead. This is a wrap up. Oh, right. We should, we should put the spoiler line out nice and nice and bright right now. We haven't spoiled anything really to this point, but we will. Yeah. Um, so (laughs) there was kind of the flashback of Fergus being on Mars in like his kind of coming of age, meeting his Mars friends kind of clip. But then there's the Mars Mars scene much later where they end up there to with Mari to find her friend and, you know, foil the the kidnapping kind of like sabotage portion of the plan, Gilger's plan. Um, so I'm not sure which one was antsy. Maybe the, I, I feel like probably the second, the latter is what I'm guessing. But that was leader in the book. I can't hear you, Tom. Did you turn off your? Oh, I I, I muted myself. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like that was so much later in the book that it wouldn't matter as much. But apparently, it did. Tamahome yeah. uh, had a had an issue with that. So sorry, man. <laughs> so sorry. Yeah, I I just I and I I'm not teasing you. I just noticed because I was reading all these threads and I was like, wait, I just I feel like I just saw that in someplace else. Turns out I had. Um, but let's kick things off first with uh, the scene change thread from Seth. He says, I'll put this in spoilers since it's two thirds of the way through the novel. Um, I was really surprised just as things were uh, got barreling along. The author opted to move the action from Cerny to Mars. <laughs> and stop I was, the whole page response, right? <laughs> yeah. I was worried that there would be a reset in the pace of the book from action back to world building. Thankfully, Fergus's new gift ensures that doesn't really happen. Um, I was also worried that since this trip was facilitated by interference from the all-powerful, unknowable aliens, that the end of the book might have a similar deus ex machina device. Um, Thankfully, Fergus and friends solved the problem themselves. Still, even though my fears weren't realized, I was wondering about the author, uh, what the author gained by moving the action away from Cerny. Did you feel that it added anything? Um, it felt to me, and it felt to me, that I think I talked about this in the previous episode in which I found that there was a lot of exposition in the book that just kind of happens without feeling like backstory. It feels like you're supposed to know it. There's Mm. a lot mentioned that just kind of feels like, Oh, and then, and then my friend Tom from college was there and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, do I know Tom? Which, which can either be, which can either feel like, oh, it's such a wider world that I've been thrust in the middle of, or it can feel like you're, you've, you're missing things. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I had that kind of like moment of self-realization while I was reading that kind of stuff of being like, I don't know if I like this or not. If I like this style of world building where information gets handed to you as though you're supposed to know it already versus getting a little more explanation. Um, but I feel like the Mars stuff kind of gave us a little more of that kind of in real time in the story without being flashbacks or kind of thrown in commentary about Fergus and his interactions with other people from his past. And so it, it felt, it felt like world building for a wider series. Well, to me. yes, I think it was not related to necessarily to the book or needing to be there in this book. But I would argue that, uh, what makes Fergus Fergus is what happened on Mars and mm-hmm. the trip back to Mars to me, uh, helped to flesh out that bit of, where again, you're thrown into like, 
yeah, so you're kind of a hero on Mars, really. And Fergus going, yeah, I don't like to talk about that. And you're like, wait, what? You're what? Huh? Wait, How what happened? How? And this is this is the underpinning of Fergus's character. This is what turned him into a finder. This is what changed mm-hmm. his life. So to me, going back to Mars was exciting because even though it was less action, it was a world building to me only. It was also Fergus building. It was giving me a deeper understanding. I'm like, oh, I'm going to see Fergus go back to to the place he wants to think about the least. Uh, and and I liked that. I, I, I felt like we got to know Fergus a lot more because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of fits into the next uh, the next thread from Steve um, called First Contact with the Enemy. <clears throat> he says, quote, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Helmuth Van Moltke. Moltke which is the quote. Um, Steve says, initially I was thinking that Fergus was a mirror universe Marty Stew, someone who was good at everything, but nothing ever went right. Hmm. After his first two plans went horribly wrong, I realized that I was reading to see how his next plan was going to fail. So for example, when he had managed to reclaim the sword, I knew it was just too easy. As it turns out, it was perfect. (laughs) I felt some of the setups for failures were telegraphed a little too much, but I didn't really hold that against the author, all in good fun. Um, There's that one quote that gave me a nice chuckle from the story. Uh, There's going to be a brisk business in new underwear on this side of the halo after that. This, I I feel like this is one of those, uh, is it your kind of book or not? Uh, I, I really get I really get my back up when people start throwing either Mary or Marty Stew around. But I do like that Steve's turning it on his head and saying, oh, it's a mm-hmm. reverse Marty Stew. Nothing ever goes right. Nothing I never ever goes I right. never felt like nothing went right for Fergus. This is a very traditional uh, private detective character, right? The private oh, yeah, detective when you put it that way. Yeah, I can see never that. gets the case right until the very end. Right. It's he's always being led down blind alleys. He's being knocked out and thrown in the trunk of a car. Right. And 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 in those classic detective novels, you sometimes wonder, like, how did this guy even become a detective? Like, why would anyone hire him? But of course, they hire him because in the end, he brilliantly figures it out. And this was following that trope rather than typical science fiction tropes. And and I love those kinds of novels. So I was all in. I was like, okay, I get Fergus. Fergus is He's he's going to keep getting thwarted until he finally prevails in the end. And he did. He wasn't even a very good fighter. <laughs> no. And to his own admission, is, he wasn't. Yeah. Which is why I was so surprised when they were like, oh, he's a big hero back on Mars. And I was like, really? For, <laughs> For what? What, <laughs> what did he do? Um, but I, I liked that because I, I had the same feeling, I think, as Steve. I was going in. I was like, oh, this guy's going to be one of those. And then you're like, oh. But um. Melina did have a good comment. Uh, she said, I was about halfway through and found his little excursion to the sex toy shop amusing and the subsequent deconstruction of dildos. Very funny. Honestly, having a tough time getting into the story otherwise. Otherwise. Okay. Uh, at least there was something there for you. I, I loved that little... Uh, I, I feel like uh, Suzanne Palmer probably had similar experiences traveling that I have because a lot of... A lot of the like, I got the weird noodles at the vending machine, and people were like, mm-hmm. "Really, you eat those?" Like, and and they're like, "I went to this shop, and it's got this stuff that no one ever buys because it's really weird." And I just bought them all, and they were super happy. I was like, "Man, that just rings true." Like, yeah, I, I think all of us have been to that souvenir shop where you're like, "Why do they even have these? Nobody's ever going to buy them." Uh, and and 
And so that was like an exaggerated version of that, I think. Yeah. And he, I think he even bought the T-shirt from the noodle shop. Yeah, he which did. Which I found right. amusing because uh-huh. I was like, that's totally something I would do <laughs> um, if I was traveling. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Steve, good, good comments. And then finally, um, from Silvana, she says, the book is a quick read somehow. I even auto-skimmed, got carried away too fast, uh, some of the action parts, because, uh, action parts, because I want to know what would happen next. I think I finished it within two days. I think it works better visually for me, especially to see the mechanics. Can't help but think about those series like Dark Matter, Killjoys, Firefly, and the likes. How about you folks? Um, Tamahome um, got a little antsy on Mars. Um, but <laughs> John Taloni said, um, I thought it was alterna- alternately humorous and serious, then took a chasing Amy into some heavy themes. Mm. Overall, I was fine with the books. Um, it just didn't hold up as well as some of the classic adventures I've read. I found it a little too disjointed and some of the sections thinly justified. Um, Tomahome does reply to the chasing Amy comment. He falls in love with a lesbian, which is very funny to millennials and Gen X, but probably not to... Yeah. Did you you have you don't I, remember I, Chasing Amy? What? The whole plot of Chasing Amy. What about you it? You didn't laugh as much as I thought you would oh, laugh. I was distracted because I was oh. uh I was th- I was reading down farther uh to see what Tamahome's uh responses were to he falls in love with the lesbian. Honestly, that's really Please, what I was and I was at the same time sitting here pulling it. Please clap moment. <laughs> <laughs> for the funny comment. Thank you. Well, I I, I agree with uh John Taloni. Uh, not, not so much on the, I, fa- I found it, uh, disjointed, but alternately mm-hmm. humorous and serious. Uh, I thought it, I, I, I thought I liked that about it, honestly. So I didn't really, I don't really get, se- I didn't really get serious. Thank you. better? Sorry. Yeah. I like how I'm trying to get credit for someone else's, uh, <laughs> namely Tamahome's joke. Um, so that clap is for you, not for me. I just wanted you to, I just wanted you to feel recognized. And I'm sorry about Mars. I'm sorry about Mars. Um, so overall, yeah, I, I thought it was fun. I, I didn't really get, I, I don't really feel the serious themes. Um, I, I just thought it was pretty lighthearted and fun overall. Um, and I enjoyed it. And I, I, I don't, I don't know if I will read the next book. I feel like a lot of people are saying it's pretty good. Um, so maybe I will, you know, if I've got some spare cycles in the next couple of months and pick up an additional book. Right, right. Um, I'm glad I read it. I, I thought it was fun. I would call this a really good, like, Nongshim level uh, cup noodle. Uh, and I would not compare it to ramen you would get at your favorite ramen restaurant, right? Like, mm-hmm. I knew what I was getting. I was getting a lighthearted, adventurous romp. And I got that. And it was delicious. Maybe a little salty, but it was great. Uh, is it comparable to the ramen chef where I would sit down and, you know, pay a lot more? No, it's not. It's not a thick, hearty, uh, It'll satisfy you in the meantime for, for days broth with, with all of that, with the chashu. Um, now I'm just making myself want to eat. Now I'm really hungry. Damn, Uh, but anyway, what I'm saying is I got what I expected. This is what I ordered and it was good for what it was. And I, I wouldn't compare it to other things because that's not what it was supposed to be. 
Got it. All right. Well, thanks for all the feedback, everyone. Uh, this was a fun pick. Um, and yeah, we are going to be reading Howl's Moving Castle by Diana Wynne-Jones as the November pick. So make sure you pick that up. And of course, our show is currently entirely funded by you, our patrons. Thank you so much to all the folks who back our show. If you want to help out, you can head over to patreon.com slash sword and laser. Don't forget, you can also support the show by buying books through our links. Find links to the books we talk about and some of our favorites at swordandlaser.com slash picks. Send us an email, feedback at swordandlaser.com. We are on Instagram and Twitter at swordandlaser. And you can join in on all of our discussions at goodreads.com slash swordandlaser. We'll see you next month. Bye. Bye. Visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there.